The following presentation was recorded live by Voices from Jerusalem. The title of this presentation is Antisemitism, Why the Jews? And it has to do with the nature of antisemitism and the real reason for it. Antisemitism is a phenomenon which you see all over the world. Wherever you are, it exists. In the United States, they've done surveys and shown that the number one point of identification for Jews with Judaism, you say the word Jew, what they say back is Holocaust. And that, to me, is very depressing for two reasons. A, that's not what we call positive Jewish identification, if that's what you think of Jew, Holocaust, antisemitism. And B, people have totally missed the meaning and the message behind antisemitism, which is a very powerful point which we'd like to look at this morning. So what we're going to do in the time we have is look at antisemitism historically and look at the background ideologically and come up with the real reason why Jews are hated. There's a Harvard math professor in the 1960s by the name of Tom Lear. And uh, in addition to teaching math at Harvard, he also wrote very humorous songs about the situation in the world, the Cold War, environmental issues. One of the songs he wrote was called National Brotherhood Week. And one of the verses in the song goes like this. You'll pardon me if I sing. He says, the Protestants hate the Catholics, and the Catholics hate the Protestants, and the Hindus hate the Muslims, and everybody hates the Jews. And the audience laughs, and we, li and we listen and giggle. But it's a sad fact of reality. Everyone hates the Jews. The question is why. Now, if you've taken classes on anti-Semitism, have you guys studied the phenomenon at all? If you take classes, in America, there are over 400 university-level courses on Holocaust studies alone. Sort of six classic reasons are given. I put them on the board as to why Jews are hated. These are the ones given by the experts, the historians, the sociologists. And we can divide them into six basic categories, which have many subcategories. Number one is economics. We hate the Jews because they control the world's economy. Number two, chosen people. We hate the Jews because they're elitist. They think they're special or better. Number three is scapegoat. Okay? We hate the Jews because they're always in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they're a convenient person to blame for our problems, which is not really a reason for hating Jews, but it's making the Jews a certain... Of the fall guy. Number four is outsiders. Okay? We can't really trust the Jews. Okay? They're different. Number five is deicide. That's a specific Christian accusation against the Jew, which is we killed their God. We killed Jesus. And last but not least is the most modern, which was the center of Nazi anti-Semitism in the Holocaust, race. Jews are a different and therefore inferior race. You guys seen these before? You've come across them? There's a lot of different subcategories of these. We can't look at every single reason why Jews are hated. But what I'd like to do is go through this list. And let's see if we can get to the bottom of the real reason. Now, before we go further, we need to define our terminology here. We need to distinguish between those things which are reasons versus those things which are excuses. Okay? Now, a reason is the thing that if we stop doing it, it's a cause. We'll stop being hated. Let's leave anti-Semitism for a second. Imagine you're a teacher in a high school. And one of your students walks in on Monday, and he's supposed to have done a term paper, and he doesn't do it. And you say, Johnny, why didn't you do your term paper? He goes, oh, teacher, Friday afternoon, I got so sick. I was vomiting. I was sick the whole weekend. I couldn't do anything. So the teacher says, okay, I'll give you an extension a couple of days. Now, let's say Johnny was really sick. Is that the reason why the paper wasn't done? It is, right? That's the real, that's the cause for his not getting his work in on time. Let's say what happens is Friday afternoon he goes home and he just parties wildly throughout the entire weekend. He stays up two nights in a row. He's totally wasted. Sunday morning he wakes up. He's so like totally wasted and exhausted from his wild weekend of partying, he can't do anything. So we, in that case, the 
the excuse he's giving the teacher is that he was sick, but it's only an excuse. It's a smokescreen. Okay, so we understand how reasons and excuses work in real life. Now we need to use them for anti-Semitism. We need to get rid of those things that are only smokescreens. Meaning, if I hate the Jews, going back to anti-Semitism, I hate the Jews because they do X, and the Jew stops doing X, but anti-Semitism doesn't go away, what does it say about the reason X? It's an excuse, right? So let's get rid of the, the smokescreen, the excuses, and let's see if we're left with the reason or causes, that thing or those things that if we stop doing it, we'll stop being hated. And this is a serious, it's not just an intellectual exercise here. I mean, we sitting in this room, because we are Jewish, there are literally, it is safe to assume there are literally millions of people around the world who hate us intensely. You, they hate you intensely. You never did anything to them, they never saw you before. But because you're Jewish, they have something really seriously against you. To the point where some of them would actually not mind at all killing you. We don't want that to happen to us, God forbid. Okay, we want to make sure that we end this problem of anti-Semitism so that neither we, and again, we see what's going on in the world today with the situation in Israel spreading anti-Semitism throughout the entire world. We see that there are anti-Semitic incidents everywhere. In London, you know, kids stamped on a bus. Did he do anything to the guy who stabbed him? No, he was Jewish. So let's make sure we get to the bottom. Let's eliminate those, the cause or causes First of all, excuses we want to get rid of completely. We can't stop doing something we never did in the first place. Let's not waste our time trying to solve problems that are really not the causes. Let's get to the real things we're doing by looking at these historical reasons for why Jews are hated. Let's eliminate the excuses, be left with the cause, then we'll solve that cause and we'll stop being hated and neither we nor our children will have to ever worry about anti-Semitism again. Now, the last thing I want to say before we go further is even though some of these things listed on the board might be excuses or causes doesn't mean people don't believe them. There are lots of things said about Jews which we never did ever which people believe about us. But we can't stop doing that which we never did in the first place. So we clear what we're going to do now? Clear? So let's go now through our list one by one. Let's analyze the phenomenon. Let's see if it's really a reason for hating the Jew or just an excuse. And if it is, let's get rid of it. Number one is the idea of economic theory. Jews control the world's economy. Anyone know where it first appeared? interesting. Protocols of the Elders of Zion. You guys heard of that book? It appeared about a hundred years ago. It was written by the secret police of the Tsar of Russia. What's the plot of this book? It's a forgery, the world's most famous forgery. The plot is that every hundred years, the rabbis and the heads of the JIA and the UJA and the Jewish Federation get together to plot the next 100 years of Jewish domination of the world. How do you know it's a forgery? Anyone who thinks 10 Jews in a room could agree on anything knows nothing about the Jewish people. As ridiculous as that book is, you know, in the 1920s and 30s, thanks primarily to Henry Ford, after the Bible, it was the number one selling book in America. There are more editions of this book in the world than almost any other book in the world besides the Bible. There are 80, there are 80 versions in Arabic. The Japanese don't even have any Jews in their population. Buy all different kinds of this cop copies of this book. Jews control the world. If you want to see where it goes back historically, although accusations of Jews controlling the world's economy are relatively modern, you guys heard of the idea of Jews lending money? Usury. Yeah. We hate the Jews. It's related to this idea, economic control. Why did Jews lend money in medieval Europe? You know why? Because the Catholic Church forbade Gentiles from lending money. Someone has to lend money. So let's give it to the Jews who we already hate. Why does lending money make you more hated? Right, you've got to pay back interest. You know what the rate of interest charged by Jewish money lenders was in medieval Europe? About 45%. That's pretty high. Now, obviously, Jews didn't want to lend money. They were forced into lending money because they were already hated for other reasons. And not all Jews did it. And it's not something that Jews generally became rich by doing. 
even if some Jews did become rich by doing it, what happened when you as the local lord, nobleman, priest, bishop, didn't want to pay back your debts to the Jews? Accuse them of something else ridiculous. Either kill them or expel them and confiscate their property. So it wasn't we hate the Jews because they lend money. We, we hate the Jews already. We'll make them do something that's going to make them more hated. And just to show you that money lending wasn't the reason why Jews are hated, by the Renaissance, Jews can't begin to lend the sums of money that Europe needs anymore. And by that time, the church isn't so powerful. The Italians, the Lombards of northern Italy start lending money. You know the rates of interest lend, charged by Lombard money lenders in northern Italy in the Renaissance? What was the Jewish rate? 45%. The Lombards charged around 245%. Five times as much, but no one attacked them. I've even seen letters of Gentiles asking for Jews to be readmitted to their communities so we could borrow money from them and not the Italians. But no one attacks them. It's an excuse. But more importantly than that, the modern accusation of Jews controlling the world's economy. Germany, Hitler talked about it often. Jews who are a teeny percentage of the population. Let's look at the reality of that accusation. The protocols we already know is nonsense. Okay? Most Jews, by the way, today we have lots of wealthy Jews in the world. But Jewish money, if you look in your family, if your family's middle class or upper middle class, you go back two, three generations, you see the vast majority of Jews, even in the Western world, American, England, were at best middle class and usually poorer than that. Jewish money is a post-Holocaust phenomenon. But even if Jews did pose any economic threat in theory, in Germany, let's say, in the 1930s, by the mid-1930s, way before the Germans start physically killing off the Jews, the Jews are robbed of all their businesses. Their bank accounts are, are frozen. Their jobs are taken away. Their property is confiscated. Their stores are looted and, and taken from them. So if we hate the Jews because they control the economy, now that we've neutralized that money threat, why do we still have to kill them? The point being is it must not be that that's the reason why we hate the Jews. Okay, they must not control the money. And if they did, it's neutralized. So it's obviously an excuse. And by the way, the best story that illustrates this is a book called The Fugu Plan. Fugu is Japanese for blowfish. You guys know what blowfish is? Yeah. It's this great delicacy if you cook it correctly. And if you cook it wrong, what happens? You die. It's poison. The Japanese, who had no Jews in their population, who were they allies of in World War II? Germans. The Germans. They hatch a plan. Now, Japan in the early 1930s invades China, Manchuria. They take over China and they slaughter the Chinese. They kill hundreds of thousands of Chinese in Nanking, the capital. The world, especially America, clamps an economic blockade on them. Japan was being strangled. So the Japanese hatched a plan. They had gotten copies of the protocols years before. They, not knowing what the Jews really were, actually believed the book. Their plan was, now they're allies of the Germans, let's invite all those Jews in from Europe who are allies the Germans are persecuting. We'll settle them in China. Because the Jews are so incredibly connected, they'll make China a superpower colony. And they believed the American government was controlled by Jews. They believed that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was Franklin Delano Rosenfeld. And the Jewish president will lift the blockade. Now, of course, the whole plan never came into being. It's an interesting story. But what's the point? That is how people, the Japanese, are how people who really believe the Jews controlled the world's economy would behave. Not the way the Germans did. Because if these Jews really are these rich, powerful people who control the world, no one is going to mess with them. So the notion of Jews controlling the world's economy is clearly a myth. It's an excuse. People may believe it, but it's not true. Moving on to number two, chosen people. Okay? Now, this, by the way, is a very common thing you hear about Jews. They're elitist. They think they have a special place in the world. So, two things about this. Number one, everyone thinks they're chosen. Everyone. You know, this Japanese flag has a red sun in the middle of it. Why? Because Japan, being closest to the Pacific Rim where the sun rises, closest to the gods, we're special. The word for China in Chinese is center of the universe. And by the way, the word for non-Chinese is monkey or barbarian. 
You're not really human unless you're Chinese. The other monotheistic faiths, Christianity and Islam, both believe, you know, in an idea of, basically the doctrine is called replacement theology. God may have chosen the Jews at one point for a special mission, but then he rejected them and chose us. Okay, we're now chosen. No one attacks Christians or Muslims or Chinese or Japanese or Sioux Indians or anyone else in the world for thinking they're special or different. Why just the Jews? But more than that, it's interesting, you know, Jews up until about 200 years ago, until, do you guys know the Enlightenment in Europe? The Napoleonic Wars, 1789, French Revolution. That's, the Enlightenment is a very important phase in European history when European really moves into what we call the modern period of strong nation states, which is appearing during the Renaissance, you know, the rights of the individual. Okay, it's a very different period of time. Intellectually, the world moves away from religion to rational thought. Up until the Enlightenment, Jews were treated at best, they weren't citizens. I couldn't use the word second-class citizen. Jews were at best a protected minority, at very best, and usually they were persecuted terribly. But up until that period of time, Jews also looked at themselves as strangers in a strange land. We're not meant to be here. We're meant to be back in the land of Israel. We're living in diaspora. England, France, Germany, it's not our home. We're different. We have a different historical mission. But then when the Enlightenment comes along, Jews who are finally let out of the ghettos and finally allowed into European society and finally given citizenship in all the countries of Europe in the 19th century, they run to drop this whole notion of chosen people. They say, no, forget it. You know, how do you expect the Gentile to treat us when we look at ourselves as being only visitors here? We look at ourselves as a different mission. We're separate from you guys. We dump all of that. You guys know the reform movement? There's a thing called Reform Judaism, which in America is very big, which has changed a lot since its inception. The early reform movement, as it begins in Hamburg and Frankfurt in the early 19th century, basically was a movement designed to remove all barriers between Jew and Gentile. We drop keeping kosher, we drop the Sabbath, we don't wear kippahs. We, we even, they even moved in some places, they moved this, the Sabbath to Sunday. The, the, the rabbi dresses like a Lutheran minister with a long black robe, put an organ in, no more Hebrew, we speak German. And you know the thing they drop quicker than anything else? Any mention of Jewish national identity, of returning to Israel, of rebuilding the temple. We don't use Hebrew because Hebrew is a national language and we're not a nation. We want to be part of Europe. And as long as we maintain a separate national identity, we can't. So let's drop that separate national identity. Reformed Jews in the early 19th century said, we're not Jews. We're Germans of the Mosaic, from the word Moses, persuasion. It's a way of saying we're Germans of the Jewish faith. And forget going back to Israel. We dumped that from our prayer books. We're never going to mention that. Germany is our Israel. And Berlin or Hamburg or Frankfurt is our Jerusalem. That's being said in like 1844. Okay, so here's a Jewish population which says, you know, we're not chosen anymore. You hate us because we think we're special? We're not. We're Germans. Did the anti-Semitism go away? 1844, Germany? A hundred years later, the biggest explosion of anti-Semitism in, human, in modern human history precisely in the place where the Jews were the most like the population amongst whom they lived. Clearly, it's an excuse. And it's an interesting pattern of anti-Semitism, by the way, that unlike other forms of hatred, where the people become more like the majority, the hatred disappears, yet some of the biggest explosions of anti-Semitism precisely in the populations where the Jews are the most assimilated and most like the people and don't act differently. Interesting. Another excuse. Scapegoat. Okay, now scapegoat, anyone know where the term comes from? Yeah. The Excellent, right. Right, the temple, the Yom Kippur service in the temple in Jerusalem thousands of years ago. The high priest would take two goats and he would symbolically confess the sins of the Jewish people on one goat and it would sent off into the desert and thrown off a cliff. Okay? 
scapegoat. The goat didn't do anything. It's a very powerful symbolic act, not to get into the animal rights issues. <laughs> but the point is, scapegoat by definition is taking something that is guiltless and putting the guilt on it. Jews are definitely made scapegoats in history. But no one ever said, I hate the Jews because they're a scapegoat. They would say in Germany, I hate the Jews because German economy is a mess and the Jews control it. Or I hate the Jews because they're doing X horrible thing or Y horrible thing. You have to first blame the people for something, then make them a scapegoat for it. And you can't just pick people out of a hat, you know that? You can't just walk down the street and say, ah, to really have this scapegoat phenomenon work well, you need to pick the people who people already don't like. Now, Adolf Hitler, 1930s, he's speaking in all these different rallies, and he's usually getting up and attacking the Jews. Matter of fact, there's a very famous photograph on Daniel Goldhagen's book, Hitler's Willing Executioners, which is a rally in the mid-30s, speaking to thousands of people. In the back, you see Hitler speaking in the back, is a sign that says, the Jews are our misfortune. Like this huge poster. What's the crowd doing when Hitler is screaming hatred of the Jew? They're cheering. They're saying, you know, whatever, kill the Jews, Sieg Heil, this is great, let's go beat some up. You know, afterwards, we'll go... Like some, after some British football game, you know, go smash some windows, <laughs> smash some Jewish stores, beat up some people. Can you imagine Hitler gets up in front of a rally in 1935 and says, My fellow German people, we must fight against the enemy of all humanity, the midgets. The whole audience goes like dead silent and they say, Adolf's lost it. Take him away. Why, when they hear about the Jews, do they cheer? And when they hear about the midgets, they think he's nuts because they already believe all kinds of things about the Jewish people. He's just adding one more thing onto it. Okay, so we understand. Jews are definitely, definitely made scapegoats, but they have to be first, you first have to blame them. Make up some other excuse for hating the Jews and put that on them. But we see by scapegoat, by definition, is an excuse. Scapegoats are always invented by countries or governments that don't want to deal with the problems themselves it's not my fault. Our economy is a mess. It's not because I'm an incompetent leader. We'll blame it on someone else. And by the way, what's the last thing you want to have happen to your scapegoat? Your scapegoat, by definition, is an excuse. Right, have him killed off. I'm blaming, if Germany's economy is a mess, and I'm blaming the Jews for Germany's economy, yet if I get rid of the Jew and the economy doesn't get better, what does that say about the Jew? He's not the reason. Okay? So we see, it's another excuse. Outsiders. Okay. <clears throat> Outsiders. Okay. And this, by the way, is something that, by the way, more than any, I would say, form of racism or religious intolerance, this is one that I think we can all relate to because we find it everywhere in the world. The notion that people who are different will naturally engender suspicion, fear, and hostility. And, by the way, in history, we see that Jews historically have either chosen to dress, act, and live apart from other people. You, know, you look at Meisharim today, you see how the ultra-Orthodox Jews dress. Now we see the differences even in the Jewish world, but throughout history, Jews either chose, or by the way, they're often forced to wear different badges or signs or hats to make them look differently. But they would live apart, they acted apart, they often, they sometimes physically look different to population, although not always. I'm sure you guys, you walk down the street in England, people don't look at you and go, Jew, unless you're wearing a keep on your head. That's the, but, um, this, is, this was the situation of Jews living in Europe for many, many, many centuries. And we know that people who look and dress and act differently will generally engender some sort of suspicion. We see that everywhere, not just Jews. If you're black in a white society, if, you, if you're a Sikh walking around with a turban in a country where no one's wearing turbans, people are going to look at you a little strange. 
But when we get to that Enlightenment period again, right, 200 years ago, when Jews are let out of the ghettos and allowed to become citizens, and like in Germany, they throw off all the things that make them look different. I take off my kippah. I'll eat in a non-kosher restaurant. I'll even marry. I'll be just like you. Okay? Now, this, we would think logically, what would happen then? What would happen if you live in a society where you're different and you blend in? Like, imagine your great-grandparents came from Romania or Poland and they spoke a foreign language and they looked... And when they came to England, you know, 100 years ago... People would look at them a little strange, but you now, three, four generations later, you dress, you talk, you act, just like you're anyone else in the street. What should happen logically to the hatred? It should decrease, 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 decrease. Especially if you're white living in... I can see if you're black living in a white society, unless you're Michael Jackson, you get yourself bleached, you know? <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> if, you're, if you're living in a society where you can basically blend in, the hatred should go away. This is what Jews go to do in the 19th century in Europe. And we have massive assimilation. And by the way, it seems to work initially. Massive assimilation. Open anti-Semitism. Jews being beaten in the streets, expelled, rape, and pillage. doesn't happen in Western Europe. It doesn't happen. And it looks like maybe that's really the thing. It's just because we're outsiders. Okay, we're not to be trusted now that we can be trusted. We're citizens. We're just like you. We look and act like you. The hatred's going to be gone. And it seems to be working. It goes down, 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 down. Then we get to 1894 and the Dreyfus trial. You guys heard of Alfred Dreyfus? Alfred Dreyfus was a 34-year-old captain in the French army, Jewish guy from Alsace and Lorraine. The fact that a Jew could be an officer in the French army in the late 19th century, which today we would think is normal, for Jews that was unbelievable. We're allowed to be in the French army. Jews were never allowed to be citizens or serve in armies. He was set up by the French officer corps, which was still viciously anti-Semitic. He said he's a spy for the Germans. He wasn't. He was guiltless. Now, they had a trial. At the trial, he was framed completely. He was publicly court-martialed. They ripped the buttons off his uniform. They broke his sword, slapped him in the face with his gloves, and sent him to Devil's Island in the West Indies. Covering the trial is a 34-year-old Austrian-Jewish journalist from Vienna, writing for the New Free Press. What's his name? Theodor Herzl, one of the most important people in the history of Zionism. Now, Herzl didn't know anything about Judaism. He was totally assimilated like Dreyfus, but he was horrified. What's the crowd screaming at the Dreyfus trial? They're not screaming, Amort le uh, no, Dreyfus, whatever, kill Dreyfus. They're screaming, Amort le Juif. Right? Kill the Jews. And Herzl said, where is this happening? In France, a hun- which is where the Enlightenment begins, the first country to emancipate the Jews, really? A hundred years later? And he comes to an amazing, very interesting conclusion, by the way. A very interesting conclusion. That the Jew, very important for this class, the Jew can twist himself into any shape he likes to escape the ridiculous accusations of the non-Jew. You say, I'm different, I'll look the same. You say, I'll look this way, I'll look that way. You want me to stop doing this? Does anti-Semitism go away? No. What is Herzl's conclusion? And he's not the founder of Zionism, but he comes to a very important conclusion. The only way the Jew can escape persecution is to physically escape and go make his own country. And by the way, it doesn't work. You know why? You know what anti-Semitism becomes? Anti-Zionism. Anti-Israel. And as we see from what's going on now, what happens when, when Israel's in trouble with its local Arab population? Suddenly, you in London, you're just as much part of the problem in the eyes of the anti-Semite. Every anti-Semite in the world is coming out of the woodwork now. So it doesn't work. It's also an excuse. And again, we see the, iron, the irony of Jewish history is it's precisely in the places where Jews are least outsiders and most like the population, the anti-Semitism seems to be the worst. Okay, the biggest explosion. So again, we see another excuse. Moving over to deicide, my personal favorite. When I say personal favorite, because when I was a little kid, 
I lived in Brooklyn, which we associate as a very Jewish area of the world, but I actually lived in an all-Irish and Italian Catholic neighborhood with the only Jews on my street. And I was constantly, as a little kid, and I was not raised religious, I didn't know anything about Judaism really, but I was constantly subjected to all kinds of ridiculous accusations, asked occasionally where my horns were, you know, things like that. But the thing I was often accused of was, you're a Christ killer. You killed Jesus. And even as a little kid, not knowing anything about Judaism and being like six, seven years old, I always found the notion of killing someone else's God to be crazy. How do you kill another person's God? I mean, I knew the only superhero I knew was Superman. It took kryptonite to kill Superman. It always struck me as a little bit illogical. But there's a couple things about deicide which are even, are even weirder. First of all, who does it? Before I even look at that, before I even look at that, before I look at who does it, why is Jesus born and why does he die, according to Christian theology? He died for our, our sins. And if he hadn't died, what would happen to humanity? We'd all be burning in hell. All of humanity would be burning in hell. So he has to die, okay. That's, it's, 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 it's what's supposed to happen. But more importantly, look at the New Testament. Look at the Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Who kills Jesus? The Romans do it. Okay, there's some, there's some Jews, a small percentage of Jews behind pushing. But the Romans are responsible. Yet, you look later, who gets blamed? The Jews, exclusively, not the Romans at all. But even more interesting than that, when do the accusations of Christ killer first appear? When would you expect the Christians to be most angry at the Jews? Right after the event? Or, like, you know, imagine Americans, the Civil War in America, 1860 to 1865. You know, in the North Winds. You guys know that? The North South, the North Winds. When do you think the Southerners are most angry at the Northerners? 1866 or 1899? 1866, no, for sure. There's, there, the whole South is in ruins. You know, the, the, the houses are all burned down. Their economy is destroyed. Time dulls all pain. Can you imagine flying to Miami? You know, this is in the South. You get off the plane in Miami and it says, Welcome to Miami, Northerners not allowed. You know, and this is the year 2000. You know. say, Guys, you know, it's 130 years later, get over it already. When would we expect the accusations of, of Christ killer to appear? Right after the death of Jesus or much later in history, logically? Right after. Okay, Christianity is not a major world religion right after his death. But as soon as it becomes one, it should, that accusation should appear. You know when the accusation first appears? About a thousand years after his death. Around the time of the First Crusade in the 11th century. A thousand years later? But we didn't do it. The Romans did it. And he had to die. Okay? And, and, he's, and it was, even though we didn't kill him, we should, someone had to kill him. If he didn't kill him, we'd all be burning. The whole thing is so weird. But even more interesting than that, in 1965, Pope uh, Paul issued, Paul Twenty-Third, I believe, issued in a Vatican II, one of the most significant up until this Pope, John Paul, who's said a lot of very positive things about the Jews compared to Pope previously, Pope Paul in Vatican II. Now, the Pope, by the way, is infallible. The Pope, it's a great position to have. Now, besides my mother, the only person I know who can't make mistakes. <laughs> infallible. The Pope said, certainly we can't blame all the Jews who lived in the time of Jesus for his death. Only a few were responsible if they were involved at all. And we definitely can't blame any Jews alive today for killing Jesus. I mean, for what, what did any of their ancestors did thousands of years ago? So immediately, anti-Semitism in the Catholics, that's a billion people there. Should have, should have been a huge drop in anti-Semitism in the world after that statement. The Pope, infallible, says Jews are guiltless. Does anti-Semitism go away? No, because it's not the reason. And by the way, if you look at the Christian hatred of Jews, you see some of the wildest excuses for hating Jews anywhere. Some of the weirdest things. For instance, England. England invented some of the most interesting accusations against Jews, starting in 1144. Now, Jews have a prohibition. Kosher meat has to be what? Salted slaughtered in a certain way and salted so there's no blood in the meat. 
So what are Jews accused of? We have a tremendous prohibition, don't eat blood of any form. So what are we accused of in the 12th century, starting in Norwich, England, 1144? Kidnapping Christian children, slaughtering them and using their blood for multiple choice question. Why do Jews need blood? A, it's the chief ingredient in matzah. Jew, B, okay, Jews need to drink blood every, for matzah, okay, for their, to make their matzah. B, as a punishment for killing Jesus, all Jews suffer from hemorrhoids. And the only cure known for hemorrhoids in medieval Europe is drinking Christian babies' blood. That's B. C, all Jews... Jewish men menstruate and need a monthly blood transfusion. D, when Jewish men are circumcised, they lose so much blood they need to use Christian babies' blood to replenish the loss. E, all of the above. What do you think the answer is? E, all of the above. Yes, we suffer from hemorrhoids for killing Jesus. Unbelievable. It's incredible. Okay, that's, that's 12th century. 13th century. The Catholic Church puts huge emphasis on the Eucharist. You know, the major ritual. It's interesting. We're accused of drinking blood. What's the major ritual of Catholicism? Transubstantiation. The priest in the 13th century, they're saying, literally changes the wine and the wafer into the body and blood of Jesus. So what are Jews accused of? Kidnapping those wafers, those communion wafers from church and torturing them. I hate the Jews because they torture communion wafers. Now, we laugh... But the entire Jewish community of Baylitz in Switzerland, several thousand Jews, was put in a special house built on an island and burned alive based on the accusation of cracker torture. Thousands of Jews were persecuted and killed based on the accusation of torturing crackers. 14th century, the Black Death. Okay, the plague that kills half the population of Europe. 25 million people die. You know the nursery rhyme? Ring a ring a rosy, a pocket full of posy, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. That's a nursery rhyme about the Black Death. <coughs> Tremendous plague. Now, how did it really come? What, who started the Black Death? Rats carrying fleas from the east bring it through Genoa and Italy, and it spreads through Europe and, and it devastates the entire population of Europe. Okay? Jews are, of course, accused, even though they died by the thousands, of getting poison from the devil to poison the wells in the air. It's unbelievable. You can accuse the Jew of anything. Now, I, I don't have to refute any of those things. Well poisoning. To be fair, the Catholic Church has come out in history and said these, this is not... Real reason for hating the Jews, yet people continue to accuse us of all kinds of outrageous things. And blood libels against the Jews are not just in medieval Europe. You find them today. They have them in America. As still, people accusing Jews of ritual murder. Okay, the PLO on their website puts that the, the Jews, Jews put hormones in the wheat given to Gaza to turn Arab women into prostitutes and puts poison in chewing gum sold to Arab children. And people actually investigate these allegations as if there's something serious. So, so the, the things you can accuse the Jew of are absolutely outrageous. Now, last but not least, we have the idea of race. And race is the most modern used today in the world and used by Hitler. And it comes out of modern perversion of Darwin's theory of evolution and, in the case of Germany, the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. The basic idea of the Germans is, is there are superior races and inferior races. And just like in nature, you don't want the bad races, the inferior animals, the sick and weak animals to mix with the healthy ones. So, too, in race, you want to separate and what's the ultimate race in the German ideology? The blonde-haired, blue-eyed Northern European called the Aryan. Okay, and the Jew represents the other extreme. You see pictures, Nazi propaganda pictures, of the Jew with the big nose, and always the curly hair, and the double chin, and the, and the greasy, and ugly, and fat. And you never actually see anyone who looks like that. But it's a stereotype image of the Jew, trying to make a racial portrait of the Jew. And it's nonsense, of course. True story of a man by the name of Solomon Pearl. Not to go into the details. He's raised in Brunswick, Germany. His family flees before World War II to Poland. And then he and his brother end up, when the Germans invade Poland, they end up in Russia. He ends up in an orphanage in, in uh, Russia, separated from his brother. He already speaks fluent German. He learns Russian. 
and he's captured by the German army in 1941. And he passes himself off, of course, hiding that he's circumcised. He passes himself off as Baltic. There's, there's millions of Baltic German-speaking peoples that were in the Soviet Union. The Germans said, we're liberating these people. One of the nice things we do is we invade the Soviet Union. The German army even adopts this Jewish kid. They use him as a translator. The commanding officer decides, since he has no children, he wants to adopt him as his own son. Can you imagine this? True story. And he sends him back to Brunswick, Germany, to an elite Nazi training school. And he spends like four years of World War II till the end in this elite Nazi training. It's an unbelievable story the whole time, never showing the fact he's circumcised. But he tells one story in there that's fascinating. He used to have these racial classes. And he tells the story of the teacher walks in, and he describes how the Jew looks and how he walks like a gorilla and ugly, okay? And, and, and then he looks around the room, and he looks at little Solomon Pearl, who's changed his name to Yosef Peters or whatever, and he says, you know, you come and see here, and he, and he drags the Jewish kid up to the front of the class, and the kid figures the expert in race has spotted the Jew hanging out amongst the Aryans. And it's a great scene in the movie. He measures his, head, his skull size, and he looks at his eyes, and his nose, and his profile, and his cranium, and, and he says, and here we have perfect example of Baltic German people. And he's like, Whew, thank God. The best part of the story, which is not in the movie, but in the book, after the war, he sees this teacher on the train platform in Brunswick, Germany. And he says, Professor, I have to tell you, I'm not 100% Baltic German. I'm 100% racially, ethnically Jewish. And you know what the teacher said? I got to hand it to the guy. It was quick. He says, Ayup, I always knew this, but I didn't want to embarrass you. Imagine a Nazi teacher. <laughs> anyway, there's no such thing as Jewish race. You come to Israel, you notice. You have Jews of all size, shapes, and colors. Ashkenazim and Sephardim, blonde and dark-haired, Ethiopians, you name it. It's nonsense. So we've gone through our six basic classic reasons for hating Jews. We've knocked them all off. People may believe them, but they're all excuses. We see, by the way, that there's something even weirder about the phenomenon. And I wanted to spend a couple of minutes looking at what's unusual about anti-Semitism, besides the fact that it seems to defy explanation for the real reason. First of all, begin with the word anti-Semitism. What's the definition of anti-Semitism? Right, we say against Semites, Semitic peoples, correct, are Middle Eastern people. The word Semite comes from Shem, which comes from the Noah's Ark story, one of his three sons. Literally, anthropologically speaking, Semitic people are Middle Eastern people, but the word does not mean, if you're an anti, which is the Latin word for against, Semite, doesn't mean you're against Middle Eastern peoples. The word was actually invented by a German Jew hater by the name of Wilhelm Marr in 1879. Okay, this is where the, the Nazis get their racial theory from earlier German writers like Marr and Dürer. Marr creates this word anti-Semitism because he wanted to make hatred of the Jews sound more racial and scientific and less religious. The definition of anti-Semitism until today is prejudice or hostility towards Jews and Jews alone. If you hate an Arab, you're not an anti-Semite. It's very important. And as such, it's the only form of racial or religious intolerance that has its own word to describe it. What do I mean? If you hate a black, what are you? You're a racist. If you hate the, an Asian, same thing. That should immediately get us thinking there's something weird about this word. This hatred needs its own word to describe it. And there are other aspects. There's a whole vocabulary that goes along with anti-Semitism that had to be invented because the phenomenon is so weird. Holocaust, pogrom, ghetto, blood libel, even the word genocide, which we all use today, genocide in Bosnia, genocide in Rwanda. You know where it comes from? It was invented by a Polish-Jewish doctor in 1943. Dr. Rafael Lemkin, fleeing from Poland to England, arrives in England and says, there's a crime happening in Europe that there's no word to describe. And he invents a word genocide. Because the systematic destruction of an entire people for no other reason than who they were is unique in history. Okay, so we see there's a lot of weird stuff going around with anti-Semitism. And historians and writers 
often point out, people like Edward Flannery wrote a book called Anguish of the Jews, or Dennis Prager wrote an excellent book called Why the Jews. They say not just is anti-Semitism different because it seems to defy explanation, and it's its own word to describe it, but there's many aspects of the phenomenon that set it apart. Specifically, the four things pointed out are universality, intensity, longevity, and irrationality. There's four specific aspects of anti-Semitism that set it apart. And just to look at each of them very, very quickly. One is universality. Unlike other forms of hatred that are linked to one group's relationship with another group, hatred of the Jews transcends all nations and religions. Wherever we go, it follows. It's not limited to our relationship with one religion or one group of people. It doesn't mean everyone in the world hates Jews, but wherever we go, it follows. Number two that sets anti-Semitism apart is intensity. It's not just like the dictionary says prejudice or hostility towards Jews. It's a much more violent, vicious phenomenon than that. It's one long list of rape, pillage, punitive taxation, ghettoization, beatings, expulsions. And what's the worst thing you can do to people you hate? What's the worst thing you can do? Kill them. Genocide again. And there have been so many attempts to kill the Jews off, we've lost track. I believe there have been more attempts to wipe the Jews off than all the rest of the peoples in the world combined. It's a level of intensity that's mind-blowing. We have to ask ourselves, what is the thing we're doing that is so threatening to people that they feel they have to kill us? Number three reason that sets anti-Semitism apart is longevity. It's history's oldest hatred. We are one of the oldest people in the world, and for as long as we've been around, anti-Semitism has been with us. Okay? Which is why the BBC, when they made their television program on anti-Semitism, when they're not bashing Israel, they're actually very good, <laughs> they, they called their series on anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism the longest hatred, because it is. And last but not least, and the thing we've been looking at already, which sets anti-Semitism more apart than anything else, is the irrationality of Jew hate. You know, if you ask a white supremacist to put on the board some skinhead, why they hate black people or Pakistanis, they'll give you a list of five or six reasons. You ask Jew haters to put on the board why they hate Jews, they'll fill up 16 whiteboards. Okay? Because the capital is communist, warlike, passive, different, the same. Anyone notice anything strange about those? Totally contradictory things the Jews will be accused of. Professor Michael Curtis of Rutgers University said it beautifully. Anything and everything is a reason to hate the Jew. Whatever you hate, the Jew is that. Whatever you hate, the Jew is that. So it seems like anti-Semitism is just one giant list of irrational phenomenon. There is no real cause. We're just hopelessly doomed to be hated for no logical reason. And too many reasons seems to me no reason whatsoever. It's not true, by the way. We're going to look in the last few minutes we have now at the real reason. But does anyone notice one thing that all of these reasons have in common? It's very interesting. They all have one thing in common. Anyone see what it is? None of them have anything to do with anything Jewish. You notice that? There's almost nothing Jewish about Jew hate. It's really interesting. Now, what's the most famous diary from the Holocaust? Anne Frank, right. Anne Frank is a Dutch girl. As a young teenager, her family hides out and, you know, for several years in a, in a in a hidden room in an attic in Holland. They're eventually turned into the Gestapo. And she's not executed. She dies along with her mother of typhus in a concentration camp. Right towards the end of the war, her father, Otto, survives and uncovers the diary. It's published. It's made into a Broadway show, a very big play. And it becomes the most famous diary of the Holocaust. Now, Anne Frank is not a religious girl. She is traditional. She's very perceptive. And she says something that's fascinating. Look at quote number one now. Okay, he says, Who has made us Jews different from all other peoples? She goes on to say... Who knows, it might even be our religion from which the world and all peoples learn good. And for that reason, and only that reason, do we suffer. We can never become just Netherlanders or just English or representatives of any country for that matter. We will always remain Jews. Anne Frank, little girl, you know, young teenager, saying there's something very specific about Jew hate. 
Now, by the way, the last thing that liberal Jews want to do in the world is Judaize anti-Semitism, which is why all museums about the Holocaust in the world are always like museums of tolerance, like Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles. Because what's the Holocaust teach us? If we're not tolerant about each other, this is what we get. Disaster. So the liberal Jews who turned the Diary of Anne Frank into a Broadway show, they took these couple sentences, which are incredibly powerful. And you know what it, how it appears in the play? Well, one day it's one group and the next day another. There's no reason for anti-Semitism. That is the greatest disservice I've seen done to the memory of six million Jews in the Holocaust of anything I've seen written. A, because it's saying that they died for no reason. It's meaningless. But B, more importantly, it's not true. Now, let's spend the last few minutes we have looking at the real reason for anti-Semitism. And I want to do that specifically by looking through the mind of the greatest modern Jew hater in the world, Adolf Hitler. Now, Adolf Hitler, far be it from me, I don't want to give the guy compliments. But one thing's sure about the guy. The biggest mistake you can make about Adolf Hitler is to write him off as a nut. He's not crazy. He has his neurosis. He may be paranoid. But crazy people don't accomplish what he accomplishes. And by saying he's crazy, by the way, crazy people don't do logical things. He killed the Jews because he's not. He's mentally ill. You don't expect anything logical from him. Okay? Hitler's not. Hitler's a man of tremendous potential. You don't unite Germany, bring it out of hyperinflation, conquer all of Europe in a couple of years by being a mediocre weirdo. He definitely had his problems. He's definitely evil. I'm not saying he's good. Far, far from that. Totally evil incarnate. But he's not crazy. And Hitler is, by the way, vis-a-vis the Jew, remarkably clear-thinking and consistent. He actually says, most people who hate Jews are irrational anti-Semites. They believe all this nonsense we looked at. I'm a rational anti-Semite, Hitler says. I'm going to show you what the Jew really does and why I hate him. Let's now go into the mind of Adolf Hitler. I want to show you a series of quotes of his. They're not, I'm going to, we're going to read them. I'll tell you how to read them. But I'll start reading the quotes now. There's a certain order we want to look at them in. And by looking at Hitler's mind, and these are not things he says in Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf is for the masses. These are things taken from books like Hitler's Table Talk and Hitler Speaks, which was private conversations with his inner circle. They're not just his ideas. They're ideas of the leading Nazis, and they're not ideas that he generally invents. They're ideas you can see in German pre-Nazi ideology going back to the 19th century. But let's see what's going on here. First quote number three. The struggle for world domination will be fought entirely between us, between Germans and Jews. All else is facade and illusion. Behind England stands Israel, and behind France and behind the United States. Even when we have driven the Jew out of Germany, he remains our world enemy. Hitler is not saying that the U.S. government is run by Jews, but he's saying what's going on between Germany and everyone else is an ideological war. And who's behind the ideology? The Jew. Now, by the way, this is a wild idea here. Lucy Davidovitz, the great Jewish historian, wrote a book called Hitler's War Against the Jews, and she postulates in that book an incredible idea, which is, in my opinion, very true. The destruction of the Jews of Europe was not a sideshow to Hitler's conquest. It's not something he does while he's off conquering. It's not a means to an end, it's an end in and of itself, and arguably it's the ends. It was one of his main goals, if not his main goal. And how can you see this in German policy? One example that everyone loves to use, when, when the Russians, by the way, Russia destroyed Germany in World War II, not the Americans, not the British. The Russians took 25 million casualties and they chewed up the Germans and spit them out. Okay? When the Russians go on the offensive and they start pushing the Germans back, the Germans have a choice. Use trains to send troops to stop the Russian advance on the Eastern Front, or use trains to send Jews to burn them in Auschwitz. What did the Germans decide to do? What's the Nazi policy decision? Sorry? Kill the Jews. Who's the bigger threat? The physical threat of the Russians or the, whatever threat those, those little poor Jews of Europe pose? It's obviously perceived as a greater threat. So this is what Lucy Davidovitz is saying, and this is what Hitler is saying. There's a, a deeper ideological struggle going on here, and it's between us and the Jew. 
That's the number one enemy. The last thing Hitler says before he commits suicide in his bunker is, I urge the German people to continue the struggle against the enemy of humanity, the Jew. Why? Keep going, we'll see why. Number two, do you now appreciate the depth of our national socialist movement? Can there be anything greater and all more comprehending? Those who see in national socialism nothing more than a political movement know scarcely anything of it. It is more even than a religion. It is a will to create mankind anew. He's saying Nazism is not just a political party. It is a intellectual, philosophical, even in some ways he looks at it, spiritual revolution in humanity. So he's making it like a cosmic struggle going on here. Go to quote number six. They refer to me as an uneducated barbarian. Yes, we are barbarians. We want to be barbarians. It is an honored title to us. We shall rejuvenate the world. This world is near its end. Now he's not talking about barbarian, guy with a bone through his nose. Hitler's idea of barbarian equals pagan. Pre-Christian European, like a Roman. We want to be this, he's saying. Go to quote number nine. Providence has ordained that I should be the greatest liberator of humanity. I am freeing man from the restraints of an intelligence that has taken charge, from a dirty and degrading self-mortification of a false vision called conscience and morality, and from the demands of a freedom and independence which only a very few can bear. It's just, I'm saving the world. From what is he saving the world from? Not a physical threat, but from this crushing burden, this false vision, he calls it called conscience and morality. What's going on here? He's talking about himself in sort of, I hate to use the word messianic terminology, I'm saving humanity from some crushing moral burden. We'll see right now. Look what he says now. Number 10. This is an incredible quote. The Ten Commandments have lost their validity. Conscience is a Jewish invention. It is a blemish like circumcision. That, by the way, is one of the greatest backhanded compliments ever given to the Jewish people. The Jewish people invented this moral burden of right and wrong. It is crushing the spirit of humanity. We're no longer free to do what we like. Okay? I'm saving humanity from that. Go, to quote, go back to quote number four. Now it becomes very clear. Okay, I'll let, this is the Hitler Youth song. I'm sure it sounds better in German. We are the joyous Hitler Youth. We don't need any Christian virtue. Our leader is our savior. The Pope and rabbi shall be gone. We want to be pagans once again. Okay? Now look what he says in number five. Here's where it becomes very clear. In the natural order, the classes or people superimposed on one another as in strata. Instead of living as neighbors. To this order we shall return as soon as the sequela of liberalism have been removed. Okay? He's saying there's two ways the world works. The natural concept the Nazis taught and the human concept. The natural concept is the jungle. The lion's on top of the food chain because he eats everyone and no one eats him. And that's good. What happens to sick or diseased animals in the jungle? They get eaten quickly and they don't live to reproduce. And that means the herd of zebras stay healthy and the lion stays a lion. Everyone does what they're supposed to do in nature and the balance is preserved. What happens if you introduce the so-called human concept, which is sort of like a safari park? I take the lion out, I put him in a safari park, I feed him big chunks of raw meat every day. What happens to the lion? He becomes fat and lazy. You ever go to a safari park? The zebras will stand right next to the lion sometimes. Because then the lion's not going to hunt me. He gets a meal every day. What happens if you take that lion and put him back in the... In Africa again, he dies. He forgets to be a lion. He said, that's what's happened in the world. You had, before the Jews, you had might makes right, the Roman Empire, the strong dominate, the empires that were meant to dominate, dominate. Then the Jew comes along and introduces the human concept. Love your neighbor. Take care of the weak and the sick and the poor. In, Af in the jungle, those things are food. You don't take care. They, they destroy, you're destroying the gene pool. You're wrecking the world. It's like playing with nature in the worst possible way. And the Jew is responsible for that. Look at quote number 11. And now we'll see where it all comes together. 
If only one country, for whatever reason, tolerates a Jewish family in it, that family will become a germ center for fresh sedition. If one little Jewish boy survives without any Jewish education, with no synagogue and no Hebrew school, it's in his soul. He's saying, who brings this human concept and is destroying the world? The Jews. And it has nothing to do with Jewish education. Every Jew has it in his soul. Unbelievable. Look at quote number 13. Even if there had never been a synagogue or a Jewish school or the Old Testament, the Jewish spirit would still exist and exert its influence. It has been there from the beginning. And there is no Jew, not a single one, who does not personify it. Every single Jew has this little moral mission in his consciousness, in his soul, that's going to come out even if he's not educated and is going to destroy the world, a germ center like a virus. And therefore, every single Jew has to die. It's unbelievable. Hitler goes on to say, this is why the final solution. This is why Hitler treats the Jews different than any other group he hates. He made exceptions for gypsies and homosexuals and political opponents. He didn't kill them all. But every Jew has to die. Because every Jew, if left on his own, is going to pollute the world with his Jewish ideology. Hitler goes on to say, The heaviest blow which ever struck humanity was Christianity. It's quote 14. Bolshevism is Christianity's illegitimate child. Both are inventions of the Jew. Meaning the Jew has destroyed the world both directly through his Jewish ideology and through offshoot ideologies. The difference is to get rid of communism. Kill Stalin, kill the commissars and all the Slavs and Russians will go back to being pagans. To get rid of Christianity, kill the Pope, kill the priests, kill the bishop. All the Christians will go back to being pagans. But to get rid of the source of all this, every single Jew has to die. Not just the rabbis, because every Jew is this germ center for fresh sedition. And this is exactly, in reality, what the Jews stand for. Hitler's saying it. Now, by the way, Hitler's not evil, excuse me, because of his understanding of the Jew. Hitler's evil because of his reaction to that understanding. Hitler says, I know exactly what the Jew is in history, and I hate it. And the rabbis, by the way, say the exact same thing. The rabbis in the Talmud say, when did Jewish people become a nation? Where in history did become a nation? at Mount Sinai, when we accept the mission of bringing God and morality into the world. The rabbis in the Talmud say, don't read it Sinai, Mount Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, but read it rather Sinai. Anyone know the word Sinai in Hebrew? Hatred. Because at Mount Sinai, hatred of the Jew is born. It's hatred of the messenger because of the message he bears. And Hitler is saying it openly, honestly, and directly. I hate the Jew because of his historic, moral, ethical message. And this is exactly what the Jew has done in history. If you look at, by the way, look at Hermann Rauschning, who left the Nazi party in the 1930s and went on to become an anti-Nazi. Look at quote 15. It's against their own insoluble problem of being human that the dull and base in humanity are in revolt and anti-Semitism. Judaism, nevertheless, together with Hellenism and Christianity, is an inalienable component of our Christian Western civilization. The eternal call to Sinai, against which humanity again and again rebels. He's very honest here. He's saying he uses the word cult to Sinai. Anti-Semitism, ultimately, at the bottom, is a rebellion against this moral mission, the burden of doing the right thing. And this is, in fact, what the Jews have done in history. If you look at quote 19, T.R. Glover, now I do a whole seminar called World Perfect, which shows how the Jews are the great moralizing force in history. But just to give you a taste of it, T.R. Glover, great world historian, says, Mankind, East and West, Christian and Muslim, accepted the Jewish conviction that there's only one God. Today, it is polytheism that is so difficult to understand, that is so unthinkable. And if you go to uh, quote number 22, you see the famous historian Paul Johnson. He says, one way of summing up 4,000 years of Jewish history is to ask ourselves, what would have happened to the human race if Abraham had not been a man of great sagacity, or if he'd stayed in Ur and kept his higher notions to himself and no specific Jewish people would have come into being? Certainly the world without the Jews would have been a radically different place. Look at the second paragraph. Look what he says. 
To them we owe the idea of equality before the law, both divine and human, of the sanctity of life and the dignity of human person, of individual conscience and of personal redemption, of collective conscience and of social responsibility, of peace as an abstract ideal, and love as the foundation of justice, and many other items which constitute the basic moral furniture of the human mind. Without the Jews, it might have been a much emptier place. So a guy like Paul Johnson, a guy like Adolf Hitler, both see what the Jew is in history. The difference is the reaction. Evil sees what the Jew is, Hitler, and says, I hate it and have to destroy it. Paul Johnson says, this is fantastic. So we see Hitler's evilness does not come from his perception of what the Jew is. It's 100% right. Hitler actually understands what the Jew is better than most Jews today understand what the Jew is and what the Jewish mission is. His evilness comes from his reaction. I know what it is and I want to destroy it. So what are we left with? The, the, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said something very, very interesting. He said a human being can withstand anyhow as long as he has the proper why. People will go through an incredible amount of pain, like to train for the Olympics, because they know they're doing it for something meaningful. Like you'll play a basketball game for hours, running back and forth on a court with the ball. Take the ball away and tell the guy to run back and forth. It'll be unbearable suffering. This is the Jewish people in history. All of us have hundreds of thousands of ancestors who were tortured, persecuted, and were killed because of their beliefs, because of Judaism, because of our national identity. And they did it gladly and willingly, knowing that, because they, they had the why. They knew that we're dying or suffering because we stand for something more meaningful. Okay? And this is the history of the Jewish people. We've taught the world martyrdom, which unfortunately today is not used so well by a lot of people, but because we always had the why, we would suffer through anyhow. That's why we're here today, because of the sacrifice of our ancestors. The fatal combination for Jews is not just anti-Semitism. The greatest anti-Semites in history, using the most advanced technology, have never been able to kill the Jews off. They're gone and we're, we're still here. You know what the fatal combination is? It's a combination of anti-Semitism. The pain plus ignorance of Jews no longer having the why. Because if Judaism is to me just some vague cultural thing, I don't understand why I'm Jewish, it's just eating bagels and like whatever couple things in Jewish sense of humor, no one's going to take the pain of being Jewish. As soon as you're confronted with anti-Semitism, they'll assimilate. Who needs it? That combination is fatal to the Jewish people. So the question we need to deal with first is not why the Jews, but why be Jewish? Because it's only when we understand what the Jewish people are in history, what our mission is in history, what we stand for, we'll have the strength to stand up to anti-Semitism and realize that we're hated for very specific reasons. And hidden within the message of anti-Semitism is a beautiful, powerful lesson. That it's because of the goodness and the wonderful things we've brought to the world and the great civilizing, moral people that we've been, that ultimately evil is going to come after us. Just to end with an interesting example. Imagine the story. Many years from now, whatever, you're married, you, you have a little daughter, she's a redhead. Okay? She comes home from nursery school. The first day she comes home, she's crying hysterically. Mommy, Daddy, everyone made fun of me. They called me Carrot Top and Rudolph the Red-Headed Reindeer and you name it. She's crying inconsolably for like an hour. What are you going to do to your daughter? You're going to give her a big hug and a big kiss. What are you going to say to her? You look fine. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. You're special. You've got a great future as a stop sign. Anything positive you could think of. What's the one thing I guarantee you're not going to say to your daughter? Dye your hair. The biggest mistake the Jewish people could make by looking at anti-Semitism is think there's something wrong with us and we've got to change. Because believe me, we don't have to change. It's, we have to change the world for sure. Dennis Prager, the guy who wrote the book, Why the Jews, says a beautiful point. He says the Jews are the minor birds of history. What's a minor bird? Miners, before modern equipment, used to bring canaries down into mines. Because if you hit a pocket of gas, you can die from the gas before you even know you're breathing it. So the canary is more susceptible to the gas. He dies first. If you see Polly, you're chipping away in your mine, and Polly's lying on the bottom of the cage with his legs shaking up in the air. You know, you better get out of the mine quick. 
the, the canary is more susceptible. We, the Jewish people who brought this vision into the world, are the first people who are going to be attacked. We're most susceptible like the canary. And you can almost any situation, virtually without exception, you can literally tell how a country is holding in terms of its democracy and human rights by how they treat the Jews. Because we're the test case. If Jews are treated well in a country, it's a sign that country is generally a healthy democracy that values human rights. If Jews are being treated poorly or start to be treated poorly, it's a sign that that country is moving towards totalitarianism and, getting, and doing away well with human rights. And they're going to go after the people who represent those values first, us, the Jewish people. So what's the solution to anti-Semitism? It's not museums. and nothing against museums of tolerance. It's not education about the Holocaust. It's first and foremost Jews understanding why to be Jewish and Jews uniting and teaching their mission to the world. Because if we understand the real reason for anti-Semitism, it's the ultimate struggle of good and evil. We're the cowboys on the white horse with the white hat versus the guys in the black horse. If we understand that that's ultimately the real reason behind anti-Semitism, good versus evil, and we're representing good, only by getting the world to buy into our historic mission of being a light unto nations and teaching the world to live with peace and brotherhood, only by getting the world to get into that mission and to giving up evil and hatred, then and only then will anti-Semitism stop. Thanks. You have been listening to Voices from Jerusalem. For a complete listing of our cassettes, see our web store at aish.com. For a free cassette catalog, email us at voices at aish.com or call toll-free in the U.S. 1-800-VOICES-3. Our main office is at 1 Western Wall Plaza, Jerusalem, Israel. Shalom from Jerusalem.